Jeffrey and Lila Mason, welcome to the new school. Thank Pleasure you. to be here. Uh, it's a real joy to have you both here. This is one of the most interesting and complicated new school conversations I've tried to do. Uh, you're both from, uh, you're both living in New Zealand, and uh, Lila, you're a, a pediatrician with a holistic uh, practice there, doing a lot of work with kids on the autistic spectrum. Yeah. So we share a strong interest in that area, uh, as well as in integrative medicine more broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, you have led so many lives, mm-hmm. uh, and um, if we were to pick some of the major lives, there's your your most recent life, uh, writing a whole series of remarkable books about um, animals, including When Elephants Weep, The Face on Your Plate, Altruistic Armadillos to Zen-like Zebras, The Cat Who Came In from the Cold, The Nine Emotional Lives of Cats, Dogs Have the Strangest Friends, The Evolution of Fatherhood, Dogs Never Lie About Love, and When Elephants Weep. Uh, the last two are, have been bestsellers, among others. You had a prior life in which you wrote uh, uh, a number of books uh, about uh, Freud and psychoanalysis, uh, including The Assault on Truth, Against Therapy and Final Analysis. And prior to that, uh, you wrote a book called My Father's Guru about uh, uh, Paul Brunton, I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Mm -hmm. who was a scholar who, as I understand from you, helped introduce Indian thought to the West. Do you want to say that piece more directly? Well, yeah, that's right. In In the 40s and 50s, he had been a disciple of Ramana Maharshi, Mm-hmm. And he was the first person to introduce Ramana Maharshi to mm-hmm. the West. Mm-hmm. In the early 50s, mm-hmm. he wrote a series of very popular books mm-hmm. that um, went through a decline and have come back again now. Mm-hmm. He's an, uh, again a popular guru figure in England and in Europe. And I wrote a book, mm-hmm. uh, could have been called Against PB, but it was just mm-hmm. called My Father's Guru. Mm-hmm. But it was a kind of expose of what it was like to grow up in a family with a resident guru. Right. So at least those three lives. At least those three, yeah. And Lila's interest in uh, integrative medicine and autism are the four topics I hope we get a chance to talk about. Great. So let's start with the advertised subject of the conversation today, which is the, the, the work on animals, uh, which I haven't had a chance to read, though um, uh, I've... Uh, Intrigued, and I've read some interviews with you about the subject. But maybe the easiest place to start is that you've written both about the emotional lives of cats and about dogs. So uh, what did you learn uh, from this inquiry into the inner lives of cats and dogs that is sort of the essence of what, what you've come to understand about them? Well, I think what I was searching for is I, I wrote these books after I gave up with a little help from the Freudian establishment, my analytic life. So um, I was, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, I was thrown out of the analytic world. So it was a question, well, what am I going to do now with the rest of my life? And at that point, I was living in Half Moon Bay with a mutual friend, Catherine McKinnon. And she famous for asking very direct and profound questions. A great feminist scholar. A great feminist scholar, legal scholar now at Harvard and the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, Jeff, what do you want to, what really 
is important to you? What are you passionate about? What do you really care about? I was, there was, was 41 and suddenly I'm no longer a professor, I'm no longer a psychoanalyst, what am I gonna do? And she said, you think about this carefully, what would you really like? I said, well, what really fascinates me are the emotions of animals. And what I was originally trying to un- uncover was, was whether wild animals and domesticated animals had emotions similar to ours, and was it even possible that they had emotions that we hadn't yet discovered? Was it possible that they had emotions that were deeper than our own? because we had no problem recognizing that some animals are better physically than we are. You know, They climb and they fly and they dig and they run and they do all kinds of things we can't do. Why, at least the question was worth asking, is it possible that elephants mourn more deeply than humans or that dogs feel love more profoundly than we do? So, I mean, these were kind of crazy questions in a way, but they, they fascinated me. And I really just wanted to delve into the literature and discovered there wasn't much of a literature on this topic. It was kind of a something that um, that animal scientists had stayed away from. It was considered at the time. Remember, we're talking about this when we first met, so about 15 years ago. It was considered anthropomorphic, so that you know you were just projecting your own desires or your own emotions onto animals that couldn't feel them. And I didn't believe that, and I don't think. Anybody who lives with a dog or a cat believes that, but that was the standard scientific view at the time, but not shared by Darwin, of course, and by one other man, uh, a man at Harvard, who you may have run into, Donald Griffin, a great scholar, and he discovered bat sonar. He was a very wonderful man, um, and he wrote a book called The Question of Animal Awareness quite a long time ago, and was castigated by his scientific colleagues for asking whether animals could be aware, whether they had consciousness. Um, and he persisted in this, so I, I went to meet him, and I was very now, inspired. What, why do you think we decided that animals don't have emotions? I mean, what a strange... Yeah, it is a very strange, a strange you know, it, I, I struggle with that. I mean, in part, I, I think part of the answer, certainly, and that was the topic of my last book, The Denial Aspect of the Face on Your Plate, is that if we're going to eat somebody, we don't want to think that that person has had a deep emotional life and has attachments. We don't eat our dogs and our cats. So if we're going to eat pigs and we're going to eat cows and we're going to eat sheep uh, and chickens, we want to think, well, they're not like these other animals and they're certainly not like us. And if somebody came and said, well, why not? I mean, they have deep attachments to their their friends and their, and their children, don't you think? And I, No, we don't want to think that. You have a wonderful quote in uh, When Elephants Weep. When animals are no longer colonized and appropriated by us, we can reach out to our evolutionary cousins. And so I think it's not only eating them, but when we are going to do experiments with them, when I was we going are going to, to put say, them in even confined well, animal worse, feeding yeah. operations, when we are going to oppress them as beings in many, many different ways. It's the whole question of using them for our ends, using them as a means, not an end in themselves, that they have a right to be who they are without being exploited or used by us. It's very hard for our species to do that. You know, we have zoos (laughs) where we want to look at them and we have circuses where we laugh at them. 
and we eat them and we experiment on them and we take their flesh and we take their, their skin, we take their eggs and we take their milk, mm-hmm. a topic that Lila is mm-hmm. passionate about, mm-hmm. uh, when we don't need to. And you know how this idea ever came is, is something of a, a bit of a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Of course, me. we also do it with other human beings. Uh, slavery, uh, yes. uh, famously, we suggested that slaves of all different varieties somehow were lesser. And in yes. fact, if you look back in human evolutionary uh, history, uh, the idea that the, the tribe, the original tribe, were the real people yes. and that others yeah. were somehow less. You know, is, I'm so glad you, you bring yeah. this up in this way because I was just talking to my, my best friend in Berkeley is Dan Ellsberg. And you know, he's not an animal person. When I was talking to him about them, he's, he's yelling, grabbed me the other day. He said, I've got it. It's the us-them divide, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're right. He said, there is no more important topic on this planet than that. So we're going to do a series of dialogues, just as we're doing mm-hmm. here, and, and try and, and do a little book about the us-them divide, mm-hmm. where, where he knows a great deal about how we do this with other humans. Mm-hmm. And then I would look at why we do this with animals as well. And I got this idea, there's a, a one lovely phrase in, in Freud, which I'm sure he got from somewhere else, I keep forgetting to look it up, but he talks about what he calls le narcissisme des petites différences, mm-hmm. the narcissism of tiny little differences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you speak with a slightly different accent or your hair is not colored like mine, or and that gives me the right to exploit you or harm you or kill you or avoid you, you know, at, at the very least. So we're you know, trying to understand where that, and I, I believe it does come from tr- the tribal aspect. And yet, we evolved as a sociable species, like dogs. We like to be around one another, and we reach out, and we do altruistic acts, and we are willing to risk our own lives. This morning, we didn't do it, but this morning we saw a tiny little mouse trying to run across the road here coming in. There was a lot of traffic, and I said to Lila, should I stop? She's not quite big enough. <laughs> it was only that big. <laughs> if it had been a little bit bigger. <laughs> and it did get across. <laughs> and it did get across, but you know, should I risk we my life? We did stop for it. We just didn't get out of the car. That's right. <laughs> should I risk my life for this? But, you know, we are in a, we, I shouldn't say we're the only species. Dogs do it too, but probably we're the only two species that will ask, actually risk our lives to save a member of another species. And when you think about it, that's pretty remarkable. You know, of course, there's the whole opposite, which fascinates me, the bystander effect, the Kitty Genovese, you know, the Germans. I mean, there's so many, Rwanda. I mean, there are thousands of examples, but there are also these counterexamples of people who risk their lives to save an animal or a person they don't know. You know, we adopt, which is strange when you think about it. Now, when you're at home, uh, there's a certain point in the day when you say, okay, cats, walk on the beach, and yeah. all your cats take off with you to walk on the beach. Is that true, Lila? It is, too. Right. Every have, evening? Yeah, every evening I say, walk on the beach, and the cats, wherever they are, come down. And we go for a walk on the beach, and they pretend they're not with us. <laughs> I don't know them. I'm, just, I'm here strolling with these guys. It, it really is true, isn't it? They pretend they're not with us. And it's like a, 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 a les majestat losing their dignity somehow if they're seen. But they wouldn't. They don't walk by themselves. And they certainly don't go. We have three. And they certainly don't go, the three of them, for a walk on the beach. Now, you used to have four, and one decided to live next door. One decided to live. Why, you don't know. 
I, he just didn't like me. Right. <laughs> no, really, it's, it's, a weird, it's a terrible thing. Not to be liked by an animal mm-hmm. is a great blow to our narcissism. Mm-hmm. And it, right after I wrote the book, it's as if he could read. And it, oh, no, I don't know anything to do with this guy. He's flaky. Let me out of here. And he moved next door to a family where the guy was a, a South African army man. Didn't like cats. The cat jumped on his tummy in bed, and he picked him up by the scruff of his neck and threw him out the window. Yeah. Now, that ought to be enough, right? What does the cat do? Back. Right back. Oh, I love it. Give me more of that. And this lasted for a couple of weeks, standoff, and the guy gave in. Okay. My cat. And now he sleeps on his chest, and the man loves him. And, you know, what is it about cats? What are they? And he only reason, and for years, he wouldn't even look at us. I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. Everybody else could pat this cat. We couldn't. And now, in the last couple months, he started coming back. And so, you know, even there, what is going on in the mind of this cat? You can't say it's nothing. You can't say they don't have feelings. Obviously, they have feelings. And in fact, you've identified nine emotional states of cats. I have, yeah. What are those nine? Oh, I don't remember. (laughs) Good. (laughs) That makes two of us. But all right, nine emotional states of cats. Yeah, I mean, I think... You could probably recall a few of them. I mean, I could if I had to. But but what I was trying... I mean, that was just a gimmick because of the nine lives of cats. And, you know, there seemed to me that there were these master emotions Mm -hmm. that cats have. Mm -hmm. And I do think, you know, talking about whether animals can feel mm-hmm. something we can't feel or are superior. Mm-hmm. I do think, for example, when it comes to contentment, mm-hmm. cats have it over us. Now, there's nothing quite like seeing a cat lying in the sun and just happy, so happy, you know, and living in that moment, not worried about what's going to take place or what, you know, not remembering what happened last year or worrying. I mean, just that ability to live in the moment and to enjoy the sensations they're having. Dogs do it too. But cats are the real masters at this. You, you write that, that you can train a dog, but it's very yeah. hard to train a cat. And there's this wonderful yeah. line that you say, what part of no do you not understand? And yeah, yeah. Cat, well, you say a cat understands, he just doesn't give a shit. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, no, no, it's really true. I mean, I think, you know, dogs understand our emotions. Mm-hmm. Cats do too, but they don't care. Right. You know, they, no, really, they don't care if you're angry. They don't care if you want them to do something. And this is partly why there's a gender divide here, that women tend to like cats. Dogs look up at you. Cats look down at Exactly. And then, you know how it, it continues? And pigs is equal. <laughs> That's re- but it is true. There is a certain disdain that cats have because they haven't really been domesticated. Now you write there's a huge literature on dogs that you that you you assembled a, a library of over a thousand books That's when right. you wrote about yeah. dogs. But that the literature on cats is infinitely smaller and that uh, that where there's that there's a lot of literature that you have to understand wolves in order to understand right. dogs. Yeah. But very little recognition that cats descend from an essentially solitary species. That's right. yeah. And, that, and I think part of the reason for that is, you know, they do wound our narcissism because they're not entirely domesticated. They're not under our control. And this is why men, I mean, big generalization, but by and large, men prefer dogs and women cats. Mm-hmm. Women appreciate the independent spirit. Men want to be obeyed. You know, so they say, I said come. And the cat looks at them like, you know. <laughs> I mean, really, they don't care. And they just walk off. 
and some men hate them. I said, come in. <laughs> they, just, they just go. Listen, they don't care. They really don't. And I mean, I think that is because they're not, they are a solitary species. So they've given in to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it is a miracle. And I think that's why people are fascinated by cats. Why would this solitary species associate with us at all and enjoy it? I mean, our cats often sleep in our bed, and it's a wonderful feeling, you know, to have three cats in bed with you. Now, mind you, they mostly do it when it's cold because <laughs> they want to get warm, you know. They're not, but they also purr. And I've discovered, and now correct me if I'm wrong, because I've, uh, vets don't believe this. We have a vet in the audience, but and I've asked many vets, and they always say, "No, you're wrong," but they can't think of a counterexample. It's been my experience that cats only purr when there is an audience. <laughs> That, and there's some exceptions. They purr to, for self-comfort. So apparently, I've heard this from many vets, when they're being euthanized, they will start to purr to make themselves feel better. And when they're really hurting, they will purr. But generally, I've noticed that with my cats, um, people say, well, they're, they're purring because you're about to feed them. But once I leave the room, they stop. So it's a kind of acknowledgement. How do you know that they stop? Because well, I hide. No. <laughs> I'm conducting self, not terribly scientific experiments, but experiments nonetheless. And, and they do seem to... The house is bugged. <laughs> they want... It is a way of acknowledging us. Just as dogs wag their tail, cats purr to let us know that they're feeling good. Now, talk a little bit about elephants, uh, because that's such an extraordinary species. What, what did you learn about elephants? Oh, I learned a lot about elephants. Should I tell my elephant story now? Really? <laughs> that was right. before he learned. <laughs> before I learned, I had a very strange experience with an elephant. I was out, this was before Lila, so it was about, what I don't know, 25 years ago, and I was living in Berkeley with somebody, and we went to India, and we went with children to this reserve. And it was on an island in the south of India, and we knew that there were wild elephants. So we got up very early in the morning, about 4.35, and we let the children sleep, and we walked out into the forest. And there was an observation tower. So we're walking, we see the observation tower, and you're supposed to climb the observation tower and observe the elephants. I said, <laughs> Ridiculous, I said, you know. And sure enough, there was a herd of wild elephants. And I said, so my girlfriend time stopped and said, we should stay at a respectful distance. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a professor of Sanskrit. They understand my language. And I understand their language. These are Indian elephants. I will simply walk up to them, speak in Sanskrit, and they'll be my friend. Oh, shit, honey, these are wild elephants. I don't think you get not Watch, I say. So she stops. And I walk up to a herd of wild elephants. And there's the matriarch, and she's you know, browsing with a little baby calf next to her. She's not paying much attention to me, which wounds me. <laughs> and so she looks up, she sees me, and she flaps her ears like that. And I, great animal scientist that I am, have no clue what that means, and assume she's saying hi. <laughs> so I turned to my girlfriend and I said, look, she's acknowledging me. At which point she makes a sound that I have never heard since. The whole ground shake, and charges me. And I thought, oh, this is the end of my life. Mm-hmm. It's over. And it's, it's, I mean, I wish we could do this. 
you know, without actually having to do it. You know, if they could put you in a, in a special room where you get to imagine, see what it would be like to be at the last moment of your life, but it's not the last moment of your life. Because weird thoughts come through your head. And what I thought of, you know, the newspaper the next day, beheaded Sanskrit is found in forest. I was sure I was dead. And she charged, and I ran to a tree and tried to climb it, and I jumped. And I you know, had no clue how high the branch was, couldn't make it, which saved my life, because she would have just plucked me down, threw me on the ground, and stamped on me. You know, I, was, I mean, for her, I was a, a pesky intruder, a possible predator on her baby elephant. And of course, elephants know the kinds of things that humans have done to them. They do know that. So I was not Jeffrey Mason, nice guy. Um, but what what made you? I mean, you're a smart man. What what made yeah, you that, assume that question, you could yeah. walk up to this elephant and her baby? Fantasy, real fantasies. So and, an active I mean, fantasy kind of, life. Yeah, and the kind of way children believe. You know, when, when we show them children's books, and you think of animals as friends, and and I was sure I meant her no harm. She would know that. Of course, she didn't. And then what happened was, I, um, before she charged, I had antagonized her further by starting to speak in Sanskrit, <laughs> chanting, and using the wrong gender. I said, Bobo Gajendra, hail to you, king of elephants. I think that was the remark that got her. This asshole doesn't even know I'm a female. <laughs> That's it. He's dead. Dead meat. <laughs> I don't know, but she charged. And I ran off, and in the end, I ran through some very tall grass, and I was hysterical. And I don't use that word lightly. <laughs> I really was out of my mind, and I fell in the tall grass, and I, I looked up, and I could see her trunk. And elephants have very poor eyesight, so she couldn't see me, but she was trying to smell me. And then she turned, and she galloped back towards the tree where she had last seen me, hoping she'd find me there and could kill me there. And I, you know, got up very quietly and went back to my girl. My heart was beating, and you know, we then made our way back to the lodge. And I told the guy at the lodge, you know, you should put up a sign: "Wild elephants do not approach." And he said, "Most people know you do not approach wild elephants. You don't need sign for that. <laughs> you idiot." <laughs> so, as you say, Michael, whatever gave me the idea, but it just, I mean, first of all, it shows. How Maybe it was. was the same aspect of you that thought you could take on the Freudian establishment. And get away with it, right? Yeah. What is this, just an elephant? <laughs> but I did learn, of course, that they have very strong feelings and that you have to be able to read. I mean, she was giving me a warning with the ear flapping. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it raises a question I hadn't quite thought about, but why is it that we can't read elephant language? That easily. I mean, maybe you know that, but it's not intuitive for us. When an elephant flaps its ear, we don't think of that, uh-oh, danger. But a dog wagging its tail, we understand right away. And a cat purring. So come to the essence of what you learned about yeah. elephants. Well, the essence of what I learned had to do with um, their strong bonds with one another, as strong as ours, perhaps stronger, because of their ability to mourn. And the way I saw this, it was not me, it, it was a, a wonderful book by Cynthia Moss called Elephant Memories. She's a very great researcher. Note, almost all the great researchers on animals in the wild are women. And the reason, I think, is because they don't try and bring them into a laboratory. 
to study them, they go out into the wild and patiently observe them mm. without involving themselves in their lives. You know, that they, see, just like I wanted to get in the, up in the face of this elephant, typical male thing, pay attention to me. Mm. Whereas even my girlfriend thought, no, you know, let's just watch from a respectful distance. Mm. And men don't seem as good as that as women. Mm-hmm. So in this case, she saw a baby elephant whose mother had been killed. And she, Cynthia Moss, kept the bones there for, and was cataloging them. And this small elephant happened to be walking by, stopped, and picked up one of the bones, it was a forehead, and started feeling it. And when the herd walked off, this little elephant was reluctant to go. Kept holding this bone. So Cynthia Moss was fascinated by this, looked it up because she had all these catalogs, and sure enough, that was the mother of this small elephant. Uh. So she, I, well, I, I'm trying to remember what she speculated. I think, it, I think she felt it had to do with, I think it was true, with the contour, that elephants, when they meet, they touch one another. They're very tactile. So their trunk, they're constantly putting their trunk in, in the mouth, on the ear, feeling the body, and they have a memory, a visual memory, of what the person feels like. Much, I guess, the way some blind people would do. And so he remembered that that was his mother. And he was clearly mourning. He did not want to let go of this. Mm. Uh, and, and then subsequently to that, I, I spoke to Sheldrake, not Rupert Sheldrake, mm. but mm. Daphne Sheldrake, mm. who has an elephant sanctuary in, um, in Africa where she takes in baby elephants whose parents have been killed, mm. mother. And she says they have nightmares. They actually wake up screaming in the night and that they're, they're clearly, she says, absolutely no doubt, they're, they're dreaming, they're having actual images of the killing, and they're totally traumatized, and she has people that sleep with them at night and, and, and act as surrogate parents. Mm. So for us to believe in our arrogance that these animals don't feel and that they don't care and that they don't have similar emotions to ours or more powerful emotion than ours is really undone by that kind mm-hmm. of... of of research, and that fascinated me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's, and it, you know, it's part of, I know what you're interested in, Michael, this, this larger theme that we are all connected in some way, you know, that we, we're not all that different than an, from an elephant. And it's a nice place, actually, to make a segue to uh, Lila's work with autism, because um, as I mentioned to Lila earlier, uh, at Commonweal, we have a project called the Commonweal Autism Project, and we've been looking at the new paradigm of autism research and treatment, which you're involved with. Um, and um, uh, as you know, Lila, for a long time, the academic establishment has believed that, uh, that autism was a purely genetic, purely inherited uh, condition and that the environment had nothing to do with it. And the new paradigm of autism research and treatment suggests uh, that autism, like many chronic illnesses of our time, is a complex interaction of genetic inheritance, gene expression, the environment, and so forth, uh, in which uh, nutrition, environmental contaminants, lots of other things play a role. But just as a starting place, one of the fascinating things about uh, many people on the autistic spectrum is uh, a difficulty relating to the emotional lives of others in, in, a, in a simple way. And um, 
so uh, just as we were talking about that link uh, between how animals feel about each other and interspecies communication of feelings, um, here we have something that is taking place in our time as a result of uh, what we are doing to the environment, at least in part, and uh, uh, some and and a new new generations of people, uh, some of whom are profoundly disabled, but others with uh, 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 Asperger's syndrome and the like, may be incredibly brilliant, and yet dissociated from the capacity to have an easy, empathic relation with others. Yeah, I think there are really different levels to look at that. One is a research on mirror neurons, which are the neurons in your brain that allow you to understand what the person you're talking to is feeling. And I think that's very fascinating research. But I think also that in a lot of the children I see, often they're in such pain from the inflammation in their gastrointestinal tract, for example, or from headaches because of the inflammation in their brain, that they're just so miserable that they're not going to connect with somebody. And when you treat that by taking out foods that they can't digest and that they're, or that they're allergic to, and by giving them anti-inflammatory herbs or supplements and helping them to be healthier, they actually start connecting very, very quickly. So I think it's not always an inability of the brain to do it, but sometimes it's an actual illness of being so unwell and so miserable in your body physically that you're not interested in it. If you think of it, I mean, Jeff had the flu a year ago and he just didn't want to talk to anybody and that's very unlike him. (laughs) And I think that happens to everybody who gets sick and we have to keep in mind that these kids are actually physically ill often. Now with the Asperger kids, it's probably, they're often not that physically ill and um, they're often brilliant as you say. And I think part of that brilliance can be that they're not using that part of the brain that is the social brain so much so that they actually have more time to develop the parts of the brain that are more intellectual or mathematical or artistic. You know, because I think we only have so many hours in the day to, to grow our brain when we're children that you, some kids just concentrate on certain parts. Like a kid who's good at gymnastics will do gymnastics all day long and therefore maybe they won't be the greatest reader, you know. Very simplistic example, but sometimes in kids with Asperger's, you see that because they spend maybe five hours a day doing math because they love it and they're good at it and they don't have to interact with other people, so they're going to be amazing at it. But um, even in children with Asperger's, there is an amount of inflammation in the brain, and when you can decrease that, they get better at using the other parts of the brain that are more social. And I think autism is such a complex disease. And, you know, now people talk about not autism, but autism spectrum disorders because there's just so many different gradations of it. From ADHD, which is actually considered to be the mild end of the spectrum, all the way to full-blown autism where the kids just don't interact with anybody. And it is due, as you say, to environmental toxins. We know that there's been a huge increase over the last 10, 15 years. It used to be a disease that was hardly ever seen, maybe one in 10,000 children. And now the rate is one in 150, and some of the latest show actually one in 80 boys. That's, of course, much higher in boys than in girls. And the reason for that is that the boys have high testosterone, and testosterone makes the brain much more um, vulnerable to toxins such as mercury. And, you know, mothers are all exposed to mercury, you know, whether it is from the amalgams in their teeth 
or from the fish they eat or from the air they breathe because there's a coal-burning power plant somewhere in the neighborhood or in China blowing the, <laughs> the mercury over here. So they have a certain amount of mercury in their blood and in their body that the baby's going to be exposed to in utero. And we know that the boys are you know, much more vulnerable to that. And that's probably where it's already started. The disease starts in utero in many children, not in all of them. We also know that some mothers actually make antibodies to the brain of the baby before the baby is born. So there are probably different mechanisms that can cause autism. And, you know, no two children are the same with autism. You can't have two in the room that have exactly the same problems. In general, they all have problems with their gut. They either have terrible, terrible constipation or horrible diarrhea, but they're all in pain from their abdomen. And in general, they all have a certain amount of inflammation that starts there. And then through the cytokines and special cell messengers, messengers go to the brain. And it has been very clearly shown that these children have inflammation in their brain with many really great studies. And in general, these kids' immune systems are not great. So often, you know, they're born and they get the immunizations and that probably weakens the immune system a bit further if they're vulnerable. And then they get one ear infection after another and then they get antibiotics because that's what we do, even though we know that they don't need antibiotics for ear infections. And that wipes out their whole gut flora, which then all the protective effect of that is gone. And that starts the ball rolling. And the immune system just gets to the point where they can't deal with another exposure to a toxin or another infection or another, you know, a virus or something. And when you get to that tipping point, that's, you know, where the kids get into their autism often. Because often you don't really have any social problems the first year. But in the second year, they start losing their language, they start losing the eye contact, they start losing the interest in other people. And to what degree, as you know, there's a huge controversy an enormous controversy over the vaccine hypothesis. Um, now, in the community that I work with, Martha Herbert, Bob Hendren, people that you know who are among the leading researchers in the United States, um, I think it's fair to say that, uh, and they're very careful because they're academics, but while they, I think there's a, a sense among uh, people in the field that the, the vaccine controversy has become a, a red herring in a sense in that it does apparently contribute to the regression of some kids, but it is a um, the re the reality, as you say, is that that kids may regress for a variety of different reasons, of which vaccines are only one. Is that a correct statement from your perspective? Well, I would say that there. I mean, I have seen children regress just from an infection, a high right. fever. I have children regress seen regressing them who have not been vaccinated. Right. And I have seen children who, you know, regressed within a couple of weeks after a vaccine. Now, the research is, you know, there is a lot of research out there, but, you know, each side does the research to prove their point of view. So the CDC and the NIH do the research to show that there is no connection and they bias it. You know, there is definitely, it's difficult. You have to look at the studies very, very carefully to actually see what they were, what they were actually showing. For example, they take out all the premature children, which of course are the ones who are the most vulnerable. Um, but the, there is definitely, there are some studies that show that some children with autism have measles virus in their gut, in the, you know, the gut is the biggest immune system actually in the body. There are a lot of, um, like, 
glands and the along the gut lining and that you can find lots and lots of measles virus there. And there are some people that say that that can start a, a cascade of inflammation that then goes to the brain. I don't think the research is really strong enough yet to say that that's... But in some kids, it may be the cause. You know? now in, in New Zealand, uh, is your practice accepted by your colleagues in the pediatric community, <laughs> or are you a bit of an outlier? Uh, well, I'm, I'm definitely an outlier. New Zealand is way behind the, the United States. I mean, in America now, last year, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually said we have to talk to these biomedical doctors who are doing the biomedical treatment for kids with autism because they are actually are helping children, and we don't really have any options for autism. All we can do is put them on Risperidol, which is a very, very strong psychotic, antipsychotic medication, which just turns them into zombies. You know, I have some patients who are on that medication and who go wild when they don't have it, but I use it only as a very, very short-term measure if the parents really, so really are, can't So what cope. are the things that you find most commonly work? In other words, let's start with the, the, the dietary things. In the view of the people I know, uh, dairy and gluten are among the most common exacerbating factors for autistic kids. Is that your experience? That's, also? Yeah, that's exactly my experience. I find that the diet is actually the biggest, has the biggest impact on the children's right. health and well-being. So taking out gluten and dairy, I recommend a trial of, d of that diet for three months for each child that comes to me on the autistic spectrum. And usually within a couple of weeks, I get a call or an email from the parents say, oh, my God, we don't recognize our child. He is just so different. You know, he doesn't scream anymore. He sleeps now. A lot of these kids never sleep and the parents are exhausted. Um, he goes to the toilet, you know, who hadn't been except once a month or so. So it makes a huge difference. And the reason is that these children actually cannot digest gluten and dairy. So there was a researcher in Australia who now lives in New Zealand and we're friends who studied several hundred children on the autistic spectrum, their stool, and tested for a certain bacteria that makes the enzyme to digest gluten and dairy. And that bacteria was not found in any of these kids' stools. So we all have it, and therefore we can, or most of us, can digest gluten and dairy. And there may still be an allergy or some other issue, but these kids actually cannot digest it. And... The reason is that they probably have bad bacteria in their gut that don't allow those bacteria to grow well in their gut and because the bacteria are actually everywhere in the soil. You know, you hand, pick up a handful of soil outside, it will be in there, but they don't grow inside the kid system. Now, if they can't digest the gluten and dairy, it goes undigested through the gut wall into the bloodstream. And it looks to the body very similar to morphine. So the children are actually like on a drug. And they like that hit. So... Most of the children I see, and if you ask friends with kids on the autistic spectrum, they only want to eat cheese sandwiches, <laughs> cheese pizza, pasta with cheese, you know, macaroni and cheese. Those are the foods they eat because it gives them that little drug hit. But at the same time, it makes them constipated. It gives them a very high pain threshold. Or diarrhea. Well, the diarrhea often actually is an overflow diarrhea where they're so constipated that the only thing that can come through is I kind see. of liquid. But um, the morphine usually causes constipation. I see. And it gives them a really high pain threshold. That's one of the questions I ask every parent of a child with autism is, does your child feel pain the same way as other kids do? And said, actually, no, he never cries. You know, he hits his head or bumps his knee and never cries. And those things change over time when you take them off the gluten and dairy. And actually, it's a good sign when they start crying when they hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they get is that when you're, 
you know, on drugs, you're really not that interested. It's like you're in a fog. You're not interested in the people around you or the world around you. And the, the sentence I hear the most is, a fog has lifted off my child's brain. And you see it then when they come back after a few weeks. A kid just makes eye contact all of a sudden and is looking around the room, whereas the first time they just, you know, cling to their parents or sit in the corner banging their head. The second time they actually explore the room and find the toys and start playing. So that is the single biggest intervention. And there are more complicated diets that some of these children need. If their guts are really messed up, there's things like the specific carbohydrate diet where they don't get any grains. And I have a fantastic naturopath who works with my patients on getting them on the right diet and supporting the parents with it because it is hard. You know, if you have never thought about food, which most people haven't, to then go on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet seems like a very, it's very incredibly big, difficult. difficult step. I want to uh, move on in a minute, but I want to ask you, beyond diet, what are the specific herbal and other anti-inflammatories that you find most useful? Okay, so one big thing for me is zinc. Right. I th- find that I do blood tests on my patients, and most of them are zinc deficient because the soils are actually depleted in zinc in New Zealand as well as in the United States. And zinc is incredibly important for detoxing, so for getting rid of all those pollutants that we're taking into our body every day, but also for your mood and for your frustration tolerance. And you know, a lot of children who just lose it really quickly, if you say no and they throw themselves on the ground because they didn't get what they want, after a few weeks on zinc, that gets a lot better. So, and some kids just become very emotional and cry a lot. So what I also check is white spots on the fingernails. Mm-hmm. So that's a sign of zinc deficiency. Then omega-3 fatty acids, <laughs> very important because... Omega-3 fatty omega-3, acids. Yeah, because our brains, um, cell membranes are all made of omega-3s and they're very fluid. So information can travel through the brain very easily. But when you don't have enough omega-3s, and a sign of that is bumpy skin on your upper arms, and a lot of kids have that, or just dry skin or eczema, when they get replaced with other fats that are harder, and so the brain impulses don't go through very easily. So omega-3, zinc, I usually put the kids on a probiotic as well because that's a good bacteria for the gut, and that takes a long time. You know, when you think about it, you have, as adults have two to three kilos or six pounds of bacteria in their gut. And you take this tiny little capsule to improve your gut flora. It takes a long time. It's just like sowing seeds, you know. But it does help often very quickly. Then um, I usually use a good multivitamin that is made specifically for children on the spectrum that has no copper because these kids are often high in copper. Because when you're low in zinc, your copper goes up. So that's, and that can make you very angry and volatile. And then... I mean, they need to have selenium, for example, which is also depleted in our soils, but that's in the multivitamin. And then in antioxidants, I start with really simple ones like, you know, the vitamin E, vitamin C, um, curcumin, the extract of turmeric. But there are, you know, you can get glutathione, but that's, you know, much harder to get into the kids. So we actually sometimes use suppositories. For that, but that's the body's most powerful antioxidant. And it helps you get rid of mercury. And that's one of the actual metabolic processes that doesn't work in these children. They don't make the glutathione. So they have very high oxidative stress. And B12. B12 is very important. The B12 folate cycle also doesn't work in these children because some of the enzymes are inhibited by the toxins that they're exposed to. So Really, if you have to look at these kids as being bad detoxifiers, mm-hmm. the toxins stick to them like magnets, you know, instead of just being eliminated as other people do. 
And there's so much we could go on to here. I, I could talk to you both for hours uh, because also a large aspect of our interest is in the question of the broader issues of detoxification in this chemically contaminated world that we live in. Many of the strategies that you're describing are relevant to uh, mm. a much broader population. Well, you know, a lot of people call the children on the autistic spectrum the canaries, canaries in the coal mine. Exactly. And they really are showing us now that this world is too toxic to live in and that right. we have to make changes. And I see, you know, most of the parents of these children have problems, health problems. Mm -hmm. And it's not in the brain because their brain is completely formed. In the children, the brain gets affected because that's the, most, the fastest growing organ in their body. But the parents have autoimmune diseases, they have irritable bowel, they have cancer, they have, you know, and they share the genes with their children. So I see the most, you know, the people who have a potential of getting sick. Whereas there is, of course, you know, a good portion of society that has so-called better genes, you know, they're probably not as susceptible to getting sick, but even they will be affected by Absolutely. the increasing toxicity level. Absolutely. So I think these kids are really teaching us a very important lesson that we have to stop polluting our environment. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. It's a pleasure. So, Jeffrey, um, coming back to the other parts of your life uh, before uh, your extraordinary contribution to animal psychology and our, our thinking about it. Uh, by the way, your website, I love this, it says Jeffrey Mason's website is dedicated to the emotional lives of animals, vegetarianism, veganism, the ethics of food, animal rights, and human-animal interactions. I just like that. And then there was this whole thing which on Wikipedia is the beginning of your bio, uh, uh, in which, uh, in your book, The Assault on Truth, Mason argued that Freud may have abandoned his seduction theory because he feared that granting the truth of his female patients' claims that they had been sexually abused would hinder the acceptance of his psychoanalytic methods. And, uh, of course, famously, uh, there was a vast controversy about this. And... Um, uh, and famously, uh, uh, you got into this uh, great debate uh, about this, um, and went through a lawsuit, and 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 as you said, were lost your position as head of the Freud archives, and were sort of read out of the the Freudian uh, uh, community. And uh, but even before that, the whole experience growing up with a family that had this guru, Paul Brunton, who decided you were going to be his successor, and then going to Harvard and losing faith in him and, and writing a book against him, really, in that sense. Um, and, and also then coming uh, from a, a very old uh, Jewish family that uh, was a Kabbalistic family that helped... Uh, found a whole segment of Jerusalem in terms of the Jewish community. And I, I guess the question I ask myself is, what is the story that you tell yourself about your whole trajectory through your life to this point? Do what you don't it, ask this difficult question. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> no. you what don't is, want to get to the heart of anything. Yeah. You just want to chit-chat. What, what, uh, what is the inner story that you tell yourself about this journey? Well, you know, fascinating. I mean, 
as you say, we could talk for hours because, you know, some interviewers ask you questions and you think, what am I doing here? Why bother? <laughs> Charlie Rose, I hate to say this publicly, he was the worst interview I've ever had in my life. What's the cover of this book? I never looked at it before. You know, no interest, no, done no research, had nothing to ask. And it's very frustrating when somebody, you know, you suddenly feel you've become superficial because you have somebody superficial talking and you're the opposite. So with you, I really do feel this is important, important stuff. I think, I mean, I see it related to what Lila does and to what you do, and I guess what many of the people in this room do and think about, that is, how do we position ourselves when we have a point of view that is really a little bit off, you know, a little bit askew of the, of the mainstream, and yet we don't want to become social outcasts? And Lila and I are very much in this in New Zealand in the broadest sense, that is, we, neither of us, especially me, of course, uh, don't really fit into the society because the society at large is conservative in a certain kind of way. That is, they, you know, you should do whatever, you, do what you're told to do in school. And, and Lila, of course, in medicine, you said, what are the pediatricians, I mean, everybody loves Lila in a way, so they let her alone. She doesn't have that obnoxious side that I have, you know, people immediately want to put me down, but they love Lila, and yet they feel she's doing something wrong. She shouldn't be doing this. She should just do what other pediatricians do, and Lila doesn't want to do that. For one thing, it makes a big difference in the lives of these kids. If instead of saying, well, there's nothing I can do for you, say, well, why don't you try this? And how do you do that and yet remain part of the social world? It's not an easy question. So I got this... It, from the opposite, when I was with Paul Brunton, I thought, oh, this is marvelous, because he would say to me, we're really special, especially you and me. I'm going to take you, because I remember once saying, where'd you get your PhD? And I never believed he had a PhD, which he didn't. Uh, but he called himself Dr. Brunton. And he said, well, Jeff, there's an astral university. And that's where I do most of my teaching. <laughs> oh, wow! I want to go! He said, yes, I will take you. But not yet. You're not ready yet. When will I be ready? I want to go to this astral university. Now, when you're 9, 10, 11 years old, or a little bit younger, I mean, our son, who's 12, would never say, what kind of bullshit is that? You know? But I was so naive and so trusting, and I was ready for it. I don't know if any of you um, ever read the, uh, Wilhelm Reich's son wrote a book about his dad. And when the dad was going crazy, because the Americans were as paranoid as he was, he was building his orgon box, and the American government was sending jets overhead to observe these orgon boxes, only harmless little black boxes. So he became completely paranoid. They put him in jail. But meanwhile, I had this son who was about 11 or 12, and he said, you are a captain in the cosmic engineers. And the son said, wow, you know, there I am. And, you know, it's very, it's very seductive when you're young, a powerful older figure who says, I'm going to take you into the secret world. You know, that's why we like the Lord of the Rings and Captain Kirk and all of those things. It is seductive. So there I was, you know, we were a small circle of people around Paul Brunton, and we really were the masters of the universe. And he was going to stop the Third World War, which is why we moved to um, Uruguay in South America to escape the Third World War. And he was, meanwhile, talking to these figures otherworldly, extraterrestrial figures to get them to intervene to stop the Third World War. Mm. Now, how my parents could have believed that, I don't know. But as a 10-year-old, of course, you're totally open to this. 
And I, I really believed it. So when that fell away from me... No, but a, the Third World War in the 1950s was a distinct plausible... Well, plausible that's right. Hypothesis. I mean, it wasn't totally impossible. So that, that was And this was the Cuba. This right. was right around the time we moved to... Uruguay in 1959. So this was a time of tremendous tension. I mean, even today we could feel, I mean, there is a lot of tension. There is a sense that the world is, is very much endangered. But none of us feel, I hope, that there's one person who can fix this. And if he just goes to his star Sirius or to his planet Venus from where Paul Brunton claimed to come, he can fix everything. But when you're a small child, it's hey, it's not just entertaining, it's, it's amazing. You know, my God, I'm at the center of the world now. Hmm. So when I came out of that, it was a tremendous disillusion. And you came out of it at Harvard. Yeah, I, I mean, slowly. It took me a long time. I think I came out of it finally the day that Paul Brutton announced we were in Portugal at a dinner party, and he said, Jeff, you've become a skeptic. At that time, I was a student, a graduate student in Sanskrit, so of course... You know, he claimed to speak Sanskrit, which he didn't, and I knew it. You know, he couldn't pretend anymore. And he said, you're becoming a skeptic. I'm, I'm really alarmed. What would bring you back? He said, and I, I didn't know. And he said, well, suppose we were sitting around a, a table like this, but it was, you know, 10 feet long and, I don't know, 10 people around it. He said, suppose I were to raise this chair and this table into the air with my thoughts. Would you believe then? Yeah, that'd do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I said, okay, everybody. And then everybody had to put their hand on the table, and then he chanted the mumbo-jumbo that was not Sanskrit. And he said, don't open your eyes. Very important. I'm calling the powers who are going to list the table. And I, you know, I remember it very clearly. You know, what is this madman going to do now? <laughs> and I should have. And he said, now close your eyes. And I didn't. Everyone else did. And, and he starts shaking the table. He says, I feel them coming. The table is moving. And he says, yeah, yeah, we feel it. And at that point, like an idiot, I can't keep my mouth shut. I said to him, well, I'm not surprised you're shaking it. And of course, he came out of his trance and everybody was very embarrassed and that was the end of it. Now, if only I had just shut up, what would have happened? Would he have been able to convince people that the table was rising? I don't know. But that was the end. Then he... He would never have anything to do with me further. I had destroyed the atmosphere. I had insulted the higher beings who didn't want to come around anymore. I was really persona non grata as I became later in psychoanalysis <laughs> starting so that. Do you, do you link those two events? In other words, is there in your mind a sense that, uh, that with Freud as with Brunton, yeah, you, yeah. You played I mean, the role it's of, fair enough yeah. to, to, to make a psychological interpretation that Jeff is still fighting these ancient battles with authority figures. I agree with that. But we are all fighting battles with authority figures, whether our parents or our teachers or people we don't agree with, and we should fight those battles. They're, you know, they're, skepticism can be overdone, but there's such a thing as, as healthy skepticism. And in your work on... And you need it in medicine, right? You need healthy skepticism as you're becoming a medical student, but most don't. In your work on Freud, with this fundamental yeah. thesis that, yeah. that he, he decided that these young women uh, had... It was a fantasy that they had been abused. Yeah. I can tell you that in our... You know, we've been doing cancer support programs out here for the last, you know, 23 years. And uh, many, many of the participants are women. And it is a remarkable fact how often part of the original wound that many of the people 
in many women in the world, but just in our little subsample, many people come here with, is having had actual experiences of abuse. So I guess I just wonder, when you talked about uh, your reading of the, de- of the material on Freud, you said it is susceptible of several readings. And so it seemed to me that you were being balanced in, in saying this. Do you, do you stand by, do you, do you, have you modified your view of your reading of Freud, or does it remain your reading of Freud? Well, I mean, I, certainly, I mean, one of the things that enraged people, well, first of all, at that time, we're talking the late 70s, so what enraged people was that anyone would say there was such a thing as sexual abuse. And this is just, the, the feminist movement was just beginning, and that's how I met Catherine McKinnon, and of course there was a lot in Gloria Steinem, there was a lot of support from women, just as you say. I mean, it was their experience. Who is some medical doctor to tell them it's a fantasy? when they remember it perfectly clearly. You know? So that was amazing to me. I mean, I just didn't get it, that how anybody could say, no, that didn't happen to you when they're telling you it did. But they were doing it. Believe me, the psychiatrists were doing it then, and less so now, and some continue it. So that was one element. The other element was that I was suggesting a reason why Freud, and, and you mentioned at the beginning, namely, I think that he found the heat um, the flack that he was taking from his male colleagues, uh, too intense. He couldn't tolerate it. And, you know, as, as we're, this theme that's emerging is how do we maintain our integrity and, and yet continue to be part of the world? I think at that point, we're talking 1896 now, Freud gives his famous lecture. The 50 audience members, all male psychiatrists, say he's completely out of his mind and walk out. And he had a choice at that moment, you know, either the hell with them or, you know, maybe they're right. And it's hard. And he did. For a time, he said the hell with them. But slowly, when he saw as he wrote to Fleece, which Anna Freud didn't want us to know, and that was so valuable for me to go into the house and, and find all these letters. And you edited those papers. You collected them. And I edited the papers for Harvard University Press, the, the complete um, letters. He's writing to his best friend and saying, nobody wants anything to do with me. I'm completely isolated. The word has been given out to abandon me. I don't have patients. I don't have colleagues. I'm a nobody. And he didn't like, but I mean, none of us like that, right? None of us want to feel, well, I'm the only person who can stand the truth. And they're all wrong. I mean, it takes tremendous courage to to stick with something like that. And he didn't do it. Now, it's possible to argue, you know, that's just an interpretation of mine. We don't know and probably never will know the real reason why Freud changed his mind on this. We know the fact is, for a year or two, he said the women are abused, men are doing these terrible things, and it's true, and it ruins children's lives, and it leaves scars for life. Beautiful stuff, his early papers on this, magnificent. And then he said, I was wrong, I was wrong, women make it up, they invent it, it's not true. Once in a great while, maybe once, and then the American Psychiatric said, once every three million patients. And, a, and for this, you were read out of the I was read out for that. And you lost your position with I the I lost Freud my archives. position at the archives. I was no longer a psychoanalyst. And that's when I wrote Against Therapy, because I thought, well, I'm still, you know, a psychoanalyst. I can still practice therapy, even though I'm not a member. Do I want to? And then, so I looked at lots of therapies, and I said, you know what? I don't like any of them. So I wrote Against Therapy, which is even less popular than my other book. <laughs> And then, you know, slowly got into this animal thing, which was controversial, but not to that extent. I mean, this was really, especially then, when you think about these were the memory wars, and then the whole thing shifted, and they 
You know, there was the false memory foundation that came into this. And, but as you say, you know, anybody who's just listening and opening up to this recognizes that, of course, of course it happens. And, and I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but I have a, a, a dear friend in, in John Reed who works with, uh, who, who looks at statistics in hospitals of patients who are in psychiatric who are inpatients in psychiatric hospitals, and he found that 50% of them have been sexually abused. 50% of the women have been sexually abused. So that's the highest figure we've come up with. And I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mention it, I would believe, and I'm sure Lila would believe, as somebody interested in that boundary between the mind and the body, that if your abuse is going to have physical effects too, why wouldn't it create a cancer? Well, I, I want to be very careful to say I don't have a point of view that it yeah. creates cancer. I, I see it more yeah. as simply a, a pretty... Uh, a pretty correlation. No, not even an interesting correlation. A pretty... Um, pretty much typical of the population as a whole. In other words, I don't think that okay. more yeah. women with cancer have been abused. I think that an amazing proportion of the population has been abused at one level or another. Sure, well, that's the Diana Russell studies, yeah. you know, an old yeah. friend of mine, and she was the first person, sociologist, to look at it, and she had the idea of just simply going in San Francisco and asking 1,200 women what's happening. And she came up with a figure of 38%. And this caused a sensation. Now, she's stuck by that, and there have been a lot of subsequent studies that show that's correct. But still, 38% and then 50 for psychiatric inpatients. And I don't know if you have any statistics on cancer, but you know, it's not my field at all, but I wouldn't be surprised that the, the kind of stress that that creates would have a bodily effect. Isn't, isn't that true? I mean, Actually, I have a theory okay. on that, and that is that any child who has been abused, whether sexual or not, if they... Um, they actually have higher cortisol levels later in life, so higher stress hormone levels for their whole life. So the, whole, the body is actually set up for being on fight or flight all the time, and that messes up the immune system. So the immune system probably doesn't recognize the cancer cells and suppresses them as effectively as in a person who doesn't have that wow. high stress level all the time. Uh, I find that very plausible. And, and just to be careful about what I'm trying to say, I have no doubt that trauma, childhood trauma, mm -hmm. contributes to ill health in later life, whether it be sexual or otherwise. But I also have seen so many cases where people who have no history of childhood trauma but have an enormous trauma in the year or two prior to the development mm -hmm. of the cancer. In other words, trauma, mm -hmm. yeah. a f deep stress, uh, appears in my direct experience mm -hmm. to precede uh, cancer diagnoses in a lot of periods. And we know that that's true for many other diseases. For example, we have now an epidemic of type 1 diabetes as well in the developed world. And we know that a big percentage of the children, within a few weeks before they actually get diagnosed with the type 1 diabetes, they either had a trauma such as a divorce or a death in the family or an infection. So something that can affect the immune system as well. Yeah. So Interesting, yeah. I want to open it up now because I'm sure there are some comments from the uh, uh, audience here. Uh, and Diana, you look like you have something. Well, I was left way back with the uh, question, do cats understand when you say, come here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think they understand it. You They're do. just indifferent. What makes you think yeah. they understand it? Or I'm... Um, 
I don't know the basis. Well, of there that. are cats. I mean, I'm sure you've all had experience with this, and you especially. There are cats who will respond to that. Mm-hmm. If you ask them to come, they will come. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are others who look, and you can see them hesitating. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? No. <laughs> and, and they really are not, they're just not programmed the way a dog is, since they're not sociable, to respond to social cues. So they understand it. It's not a de- cognitive deficiency. It's just not part of their nature to obey it. So they don't take it from anybody. Are you, you know. familiar with Rupert Sheldrake's book on telepathy? Sure, we were just talking about it. Yeah, we he were just. And as a matter of fact, it's an interesting point because I I, uh, I asked Jeffrey uh, if he was familiar with Rupert Sheldrake's book, uh, uh, "Dogs Who Know When Their Masters Are Coming Home," and, and other essays. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, Jeffrey said that he he knew it and admired it, but didn't ha- happen to believe that. Uh, that that the data there were necessarily clear cut. I guess that's a fair way. To yeah, I mean, we spent some time with him in London. He's yeah. a lovely man and a very. Yeah. I mean, he was wonderful. I interviewed him about all kinds of things, anecdotal evidence, and he was superb on most of these yeah. things. Uh, and he did show us. I don't know. If, did he show you two of the videos, or did I only see that? Showed us the videos he's made of the dogs. You know, you have a dog in a, at home, and you have the person in the office, and the clock shows 12 o'clock, not the time to go, but the man gets up, decides he's going to go home, and the dog, whoop! <laughs> and you, know, you have a clock there, whoa, my master's coming home. And, you know, how do you explain that? I have no idea. I just don't believe that, you know, he has a hypothesis. And I do believe that, David. Um, I mean, and I'm, he claims it's more than a hypothesis, morphic resonance, right. and he believes that there's an actual physical attachment between the dog and the person, and I can't see any evidence for it. But it's fascinating. I mean, it is very interesting. Yeah. And you definitely wouldn't get that with a cat. Coming home, who cares? You know, <laughs> Stay as long as you well, like. Well, actually, no. Actually, no. Our, our cat comes to greet me yeah. uh, when Every I show up on my time. bicycle. No, at different times. Different, really? Yeah. So wow. we have a cat. Charlotte and I right. have a cat who comes to meet me when I wow. show up. Wow. So this cat happens to care for whatever reason. Wow, fascinating, yeah. There, there we go, there's another book. I didn't used to like cats. And I didn't used to like cats. Cats who know when their masters are coming <laughs> home. <laughs> you know what? Sorry. Go ahead. Um, do you think that religion perpetuates the, this feeling of superiority between humans and animals? Because I, I feel that uh, Genesis says that uh, humans are supposed to use what God has created. And I think, uh, because one of the reasons I went into veterinary medicine was I felt this uh, feeling that humans felt they were superior. In fact, I had to tell my biology teacher that uh, humans were animals also. Yeah. And uh, I just felt... So you feel, I mean, after this long practice, you feel that there's no truth to that, that we're a superior species? No. I think... uh, Survival is the, you know, the essence of, uh, you know, evolution, whatever, and uh, we may not survive, and other animals may be. Well, that's right. I mean, talk about intelligence. I mean, it is bizarre that we are the first species to bring about a possible destruction of the planet. I mean, you know, you saw the acidity in the oceans may last now for the next... 10,000 years, totally man-created, totally anthropogenic. And it's not as if we don't even know this. You know, it, it's, it's, we, we have known this for a while. I mean, we've known it for the last 20 years or so. 
And yet it, it seems almost impossible for us to stop. Now, how intelligent is that? No other animal has ever destroyed its own environment. And no other animal talk about that's why Dan was so interested in this question of genocide. He said, well, is there any example of an animal that's tried to destroy all other animals? Of course not. You know, there's not even such a thing as hatred among animals. I mean, they, they, they fight, they usually fight rarely to the death. They don't, um, you know, if they're interested in eating another animal, it's purely functional. They're not, it doesn't involve greed and hatred and all of the mm. things that we associate, which is weird. I don't know what happened to this species. You know, we have these capacities that are wonderful. We also have these capacities that are horrendous. And I don't get it from an evolutionary point of view why we would have evolved to the point where we're just about to destroy the entire planet. Other comments or questions? Yes, Joe. Uh, you know, we were told that the emotions in animals or people were, uh, you know, pretty connected to the limbic system. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about emotions in animals, are you talking about animals with a developed limbic system? Or yeah. All animals? Yeah. Well, I mean, how far down would one go? You know. Well, one... you know, you can go down to, um, you know, crocodile. Yeah, I don't think crocodiles have a very developed limbic system. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, but, but, look at fish. I mean, it wasn't until a couple years ago that scientists were willing to recognize that fish had, could feel pain. I mean, it's, it's common sense. Obviously, you see a fish thrashing about and you look in the eyes and they're gasping. Of course they're feeling pain, but it took until a few years ago where they actually did experiments, unfortunately, to uncover this. The same with, with, um, with birds. You know, we, we had this awful phrase, bird brains, and, we, you know, we've given that up officially now. And the uh, avian nomenclature society has given up that, that term and said we will never use it again. And they don't have exactly the same brains we do, obviously. And I'm not sure whether birds have a limbic system, but of course parrots have very profound emotions. Uh, it's easier to recognize mammal to mammal. Um, but, you know, Conrad Lorenz, when he first saw the geese with their, I mean, geese really have these tremendous capacity. What was that in the New York Times a, a few weeks ago, that beautiful passage where Christoph saw this, um, as a boy, he saw a goose that had lost its partner and the, the, the partner was just refused to fly away, was just hanging around the house and honking and I mean, that's not just instinct. I mean, there's a feeling there of depression, of sadness, of loss. I've lost my mate. And I think, by the way, that's another emotion where I think some animals maybe are superior when it comes to losing a mate. Because we're not, as a, as a species, we're not particularly famous, the males <laughs> among us, for fidelity. And many animals are. Not mammals, <laughs> but birds. Many birds are tremendously faithful. And, you know, so what I wanted to ask, is there another physiological correlate beside the limbic system that brings emotions that you can uh, well, make reference to in one way or another? You know, this is a curiosity. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you ever read, there's a fascinating article um, by David Foster Wallace, you know, the wonderful novelist who killed himself a few months ago. And he has a very a beautiful essay called Consider the Lobster. Uh, it's an amazing article, actually very much worth reading, both for its, the way it's written. It's just 
amazingly written, and the fact that he went to a lobster convention in Maine and asked questions that normally people don't ask about lobster pain and lobster emotions. And, you know, I tried to follow up on this because I thought these were fascinating questions. I talked to some lobster scientists and they're poo-poo, you know, and they would say, well, show me where in the body of a lobster these emotions could reside. And I said, well, you know, they have a central nervous system. Now, we, we don't know, you know, and there are many animals who don't have brains but have a central nervous system. That is a kind of brain. And are we really prepared to say they cannot feel? I mean, how far would I go? Would I say insects? I remember meeting E.O. Wilson once and, you know, the great Harvard. Yeah, um, and saying to him, you know, he's the world's leading authority, a mere macology on ants. And I said, well, do you think if you, you know, if you put your finger like this in a group of ants, they scatter, do you think they feel anything like fear? Or, and he just laughed. He thought this was absolutely absurd. That was a long time ago. I don't think that that's so absurd. And I don't think that people who study insects anymore would say it's absolutely impossible that they... They may not feel what we feel, but they obviously feel something. Look at the you know, colony collapse disorder in, in bees, trying to understand that there has to be a certain psychological element. Talk about trauma. You, know, you take these bees uh, 3,000 miles away in these giant trucks for days and days and keep them enclosed and let them out. They're going to be traumatized. Why can't we accept that we're not the only animal to feel trauma? You know, perhaps the, the, the common ground here is that there... That that feeling may be an anthropomorphic description of, of something a that state goes on. of distress. That's right. Um, yeah. I would agree with that. You had a question in the back. Well, I was just going to say that um, about superiority. Um, I used to. I had a Shetland sheepdog, and I used to say that in many ways she is far superior to me because she knows her purpose. Yeah. There's something about animals and their, their knowing of you know, their, their yeah. purpose. They're bred uh, for certain uh, jobs, functions, and they know that. And they get great they, satisfaction from it. Exactly, but then you contrast yeah. that with humans yeah. who are you know, really, really still confused and very, you know, that's what right. is my purpose? Yeah, well, that's what, what Michael was saying. What, you know, oh. what are you all about? I don't know, Michael. <laughs> Why do you ask me? How would I know? I'm not a sheepdog. <laughs> We all like to be sheepdogs. <laughs> there was an article this morning on the, on the web about uh, laughter. I'm a, a laughter yoga teacher. About tracing that now to, to um, primates, to, to, to apes. Tracing what? Laughter. Oh, that's laughter right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laugh to, yeah, yeah. To well, apes, yeah. And that all you have to do is, you know, tickle them. And well, there's a great man by the name of Yak Pangsip, and he is a neuroscientist who specializes in laughter in rats. And people laughed at him 20 years ago. They're not laughing anymore because he really has discovered neural centers in the rat where, and, and we, don't, we didn't hear it because it's below our threshold. But rats, when you tickle them, laugh. We just can't hear it. That's fabulous. Cheryl, did you have a comment? Oh, yeah. I was just thinking about rats laughing, sorry. <laughs> uh, I like that idea. Anyway, I'm so, so glad you both are here. I've, I've lent my copy of When Elephants Weep So Often that it hasn't come back. Oh, thank you, it. thank you. It was a very successful book. I think part of the reason was that it, it really vindicated what everybody already thought. I mean, normal people <laughs> did, never thought that dogs and all these other animals were complete robots and automatons and had no feeling. I mean, we always knew that. We knew that. We knew yeah. that. I, think, I think the, the word is that the, the, 
Well, a couple of things. You know, Candace Pert has done some research about emotion and has found neurotransmitters in the intestine and gut. So presumably, we feel emotion all over our body. I did not. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would that would go with what you were saying. Yeah. And that the the limbic system first appears in reptiles and presumably is in dinosaurs, which means it would be in birds as well. Oh, really? So I'm wrong. So crocodiles do have a limbic yeah, system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the first thing that's there that is capable of experiencing. Emotion. I didn't know that. That's interesting. They make good mothers, crocodiles. Yeah. And so. So were yeah. some of the dinosaurs. Really? They're very good yeah. mothers because the, when you look at bone rates, it's growth, it's clear that some uh, dinosaurs develop very slowly, so they required a good mother great, yeah. to take care of them for yeah. a long time. But what I wanted to ask you, and I'm trying to remember where I read this, is that, is that apparently the, 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 when scientists look at our brains and where we experience emotion, if you assume that that's really true, that I think it's whales that have extra mechanisms or structures in their brains yeah. that suggest they may feel deeper emotions or perhaps even other kinds of emotions yeah. than we do. Have you come across When that? I talked to, I, I asked Roger Payne about that. Oh. And yeah, we know Roger. He's, he's yeah. a great yeah. scientist, yeah. I mean, the world leading. And he was very cautious. Yeah. But, you know, definitely he said, look, they're such mysterious beings and their brains are so much larger than ours and there are these areas that we don't understand. And then there's this recent, you know, they now discover that, I think it's the right whale that will nurse for 25 years, nursing. <laughs> and you know, they have these very deep bonds between uh, a calf and the mother, and they just last for a lifetime, more than ours. You know, so they stay together forever. And I mean, is it, you know, I find whales just utterly fascinating. If I had my life to live over, I think I'd want to be a marine biologist. Oh, I just, that or going into the Amazon looking for special herbs to cure cancer. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure I get one comment from everybody who wants to speak. Did somebody else? Yes, go ahead. Hi, I'm really interested in languages in general, and I've had animals my whole life. I have dogs, parrots, birds, you name it. And I live in very close proximity. At times I had a studio and I had pets all over. What I find interesting, I just thought of that the other day, is my animals really understand my English. I, they get to understand their name, commands. My parents speak English. One taught English to the other one. <laughs> and so they have a, and they learn, you know, they were with other birds. They learned the language of the other birds. So they were like trilingual. I, to this day, do not understand my dog bark, my cat mowing. I can understand their body language, but so I'm thinking that animals have a, a an ability to understand our language. Well, definitely, you know, you know, Alex and me. Have any of you read that fascinating book by Irene Pepperberg about Alex the parrot? Um, I tell you the problem with that. I mean, it's a fascinating book and it's a wonderful book, but you do have to wonder, and this brings up your theme: why we have to take an animal out of the wild and force it to learn our language in order to convince ourselves that this animal is intelligent or can do things, why can't we just respectfully go and observe them and see what, you know, what do parrots, we don't know anything about what co parrots communicate to one another. Why do they have this extraordinary ability to mimic? We don't know. And, and they can do all of these things, but it's like with the, la the ape language experiments, I mean, do we really have to do what, what, what she did to Coco and yeah. imprison this animal? It's wrong, you know, it's just wrong. And it's so much better if we go out, and different with dogs and cats, I totally understand what you're asking, 
But I'm thinking about the larger context of what animals understand. Most animals, to be honest, are not interested in us in the wild. You know, that elephant, she didn't care about me. I was just an irritant to her. Um, and they don't have a wild animal, and this, this always interested me, wild animals don't form friendships in the wild with other species. Only dogs and humans do that. And my new book is about this ability that we have, which I believe we got from dogs. I think dogs taught us that we, well, we did it mutually, that we grew, you know, 40,000 years together. Maybe we developed this ability to empathize, to feel sympathy. And, you know, when you were talking about autistic kids, and I was thinking about this, I've never heard that. Have you ever noticed with dogs, this is something new, I just noticed it last week, if you pass a dog, any dog in a car, and you look at it, the dog will make eye contact instantaneously. Or if they're sitting in front of a store and they're waiting for their man, you look, they look at you. And humans don't do that. We, I mean, sometimes we do, but rarely. Mostly we avoid. And dogs make an instantaneous eye contact. I've never known an autistic dog. <laughs> Which is why I don't like Temple Grandin, you see. I don't like her work. Well, I understand animals because I'm autistic. I actually like Temple Grandin a lot. Yeah, but I don't. And one of the reasons I don't is because she says, because of my, I'm autistic, I can understand I animals. But excuse me, animals are not autistic. There are, there are traumatized dogs who just shake and, you know, they get yeah, scared. Of course, and, yeah. And we uh, oh, sure. sort of uh, yeah. lived with a dog for a few months that we got from a pound. And, and when we first got him, he, he couldn't walk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, that's trauma, sure. I mean, of course. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, they don't. I mean, I don't think any dog is born with autism. Mm -hmm. But but the same thing you're saying about people now. It's only the the pollutants that are yeah yeah yeah. But no, there's I, still trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's still yeah. the key to all this. But it, it I mean, but it's so much easier to get a dog healthy again. You know, you give them a good life mm -hmm. and, a, and a good environment, and they snap back. Well, Lila achieves that with some of these kids, but mostly we don't. Well, it, we, we, we have a dog right now yeah. that uh, if you're going to, to the front door yeah. and you reach down for him, he runs. How long have you had him? Seven months. And, and he loves he to go on walks. He should change. I mean, obviously. He's changed already. Yeah, obviously this was a dog that was beaten. I don't, we don't know, know what. what. Yeah, but, what. but surely. I mean, but, see, it's easy for us to say that with a dog. I mean, any dog person, you know, any dog trainer, if you say, well, my dog cowers, I've only had him a few months and he cowers, say, well, that dog was hit. But with humans, we're more reluctant to say that. But I think, you know, we shouldn't be reluctant. Obviously, if someone cowers emotionally, they've been hit. Mm -hmm. I, I want us to bring this to an end just because I want to give you a few minutes to say hello to people before you have to leave. Okay. But uh, uh, Jeffrey and Lila Mason, thank you both so much for being with us at the New School. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah.